Welcome to the Yoga Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Saraswati Clare, an award-winning documentary filmmaker and owner of Yoga Kula from the San Francisco Bay Area. Join us to hear from the world's leading experts on yoga, teachers, doctors, scientists, and scholars. To study more deeply with these inspiring teachers, check out the courses on our website, In this new era, where we have the opportunity to envision and create a new world, the practices of yoga help us to live more consciously so that we can create a better inner and outer world. To help others find us, please leave your comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Today I'm talking with Eddie Stern. Eddie is a renowned yoga teacher and author of One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Transform Your Life. Eddie has been practicing yoga since 1987. Eddie has a passion for seeking out diversity in all aspects of his work and uses a multidisciplinary approach of combining technology and scientific research to help further understanding education, and access to yoga. Welcome, Eddie. So great to talk with you today. Um, Thanks for taking the time. And um, tell us where you are this morning. Where are you today? I'm in New York City. Cool. And that's where you're living? That's where I live, where I've always lived. Oh, wonderful. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's a it's a wild time in the world right now with so much, so many challenges. You know, nearly twelve months with the pandemic, and then um, crazy political upheaval. Um, the other thing that keeps coming to mind too is all this craziness with the conspiracy theories and the, um, you know so much injustice, racial injustice in the world. There's so, so much, so many challenges that people are facing right now in this time. And I wondered from, from your perspective, like what are the things that you're kind of doing yourself, you know, in your yoga practice to help you stay grounded and um, deal with the challenges as they come up? How, how do you, how do you navigate that using yoga? Well, um, you know, I don't know how I navigate that using yoga. Um, my yoga practice in regards to asanas and pranayama and worship is for the purposes that like yoga is, is meant for. Um, and these are all, um, inner motivations and the way that I deal with, the uh, problems of the world is through being engaged in those problems on whatever level I can. So I think to be active in the world and to try to help support or problem solve, uh, participate, whatever you're called to do is the way to deal with those things through service. And, um, but yoga practices are supposed to undo the sources of suffering that we have inside of us. I mean, that's what all the yoga texts say. That's how they all start off. 
They all say yoga is for undoing the source of suffering, and sufferings are threefold. And so I try to, you know, keep my yoga practice for the purpose that they were designed for. And um, then um, when it comes to things that I actively do in New York, I'm involved with reduction of gun violence uh, in Queens, which I've been doing for about eight years or so. Um, And... You know, we support local soup kitchens by donating money, usually, to help feed people. And um, little bits and pieces like that, you know, we try to stay engaged moderately on a political level, whether it's donations to candidates that we think are upholding or standing for the values that that we abide by. Um, And, of course, voting and um, in talking with people about politics, too, because if you're going to live in society and operate within the rules of a society, meaning using money and having an apartment and paying rent and having utilities, maybe even using a credit card or a telephone, then you're engaged in society. So you want to make sure that the people who are the lawmakers are going to be the ones who are looking out for the interests that you hold true. So um, those are some of the things that that we basically do Uh, in yoga in general. One of the things which is, doesn't seem to be as um, emphasized as much these days, but was emphasized a lot more when I was coming into the yoga world, was this idea of service. You know, even when we were teaching yoga in the 1980s at Shivananda or the other schools that I worked at, we were never paid for teaching. There wasn't an occupation of a yoga teacher. You know, we, I had a job and, um, and then I taught as seva as service for, for the school. And um, I've said this on several other occasions, but as soon as I started accepting money for teaching, I felt so unclean. I felt like I had really betrayed um, the, um, you know, the, the ethos that I had been instructed as what yoga was, was for. Um, and I have to say now I'm very grateful that I can make a living as a yoga teacher, but the, the idea of service is a a very important aspect of yoga and it is a very important um, aspect of the Hindu tradition. Mm -hmm. So that part should never be neglected. And um, generosity is one of the 10 yamas and niyamas that you find in Hatha Yoga Pradipika and in Yoga Yajnivalkya and in other texts like that. So we need to find ways to be generous um, and to be... um, uh, you know, uh, open-hearted and forgiving and uh, express some active compassion and generosity is a way of doing that, especially in times when people are suffering so greatly. Yeah, I, I, um, I would wonder if you were to speak to a group of, you know, high schoolers in Manhattan today um, about the ways in which you found the practices, helped you navigate um, being a young person in today's world. Um, I wonder if you could think about what you might say to a group of them. Like if you think of yourself at that young age, what, what I often think about, gosh, if I had this information when I was younger, my life, (laughs) how much easier it would be instead of believing everything that my mind thought and getting so polarized about everything. 
I just wondered if you could speak to us as though, you know, you were speaking to that the sort of younger generation who actually seem a lot smarter than we do, I have to admit. But uh, what would yeah, you like say to, um, you know, teens who are troubled, teens who are finding their way? And I know you've done some work um, with folks. Um, you've done some uh, surveying and research and things like that. So um, maybe it's to that crowd of people that you've been working with. Yeah, I actually have spent a lot of time working with high school kids and with elementary kids. Um, since 2001, I've been involved in programs where we taught yoga and meditation in public schools. And um, we've done a lot of curriculum writing for public schools in particular for them to institute health and wellness programs. Um, even if you make these you know, well, I think the thing to do is make the practices available. You don't have to say too much. You don't need to convince kids of anything. Just if they're stressed out or something like that, you say, here's something you can try for your stress. And they won't necessarily be amenable to it. Um, but you can't say, you know, if I was your, if I had learned this when I was your age, I would have blah, blah, blah. Like that doesn't work. You know, not even as a, as a parent does that work because it's a different age. And, and kids know a whole lot. Um, so you offer the techniques and you make them accessible to them. You give them just uh, as much as might be useful. And some of them might find them useful and might want to continue. And some might find that it, it's, it's not terribly helpful. But generally speaking, if you let a group of high school kids lie down on their backs for 10 minutes in the middle of the day and talk them through a guided relaxation and they get to rest and maybe even take a little nap, they're going to like it um, and they're going to see how beneficial it is because school is stressful and, you know, and they're not getting enough sleep anyway. So to be able to lie down in a, you know, a yoga or wellness class and, and be told by the teacher, now just rest and I'm going to guide you through a rest. That's enough to um, make kids want to be in that space. So I wouldn't say too much to them to tell you the truth. I, I would share practices that seem to be beneficial and then continue to share them if, if they want, you know, if they want to receive more because the practice is, speaks for itself. Yeah. And otherwise yeah. it's just another old, you know, bald white guy telling them what to do and who needs that. <laughs> um, I understand to you, you know, with you've done the research and you're really interested in, and um, I'm loving reading your book too, and, you know, a, one simple thing, a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. Um, I'm really interested about what you discovered, you know, in the research of understanding. And I'm talking about the practices, and you talk about this too, not just the physical asana practice, but all the other practices. I wonder if you could walk us through some of the research that you discovered and, and how you're speaking about yoga as a science or the science of it. Well, there are two particular studies um, that I'll talk about. And they're ones that I was in, um, that I took part in, that I had designed the protocols for. One was the first study I ever did with Dr. Marshall Hagens, and this was on Ashtanga yoga and pre-hypertensive conditions in African-Americans. And I designed a very modified 
protocol based on some salutations and standing poses, a couple of seated poses. Most of the participants were over 50, 55, and almost all of them were overweight and um, not exercising, never done any yoga. And in a space of about 12 weeks, there was a uh, remarkable decrease in overall blood pressure, especially the sleeping blood pressure, which is an important measurement. And um, it was a successful study. It showed significant statistical improvements through the protocol. And uh, we were quite happy about that. And the paper was published and it's been um, referred to in several books um, so far on yoga and science. And um, then later on, Dr. Hagens and I did a, another study that was on high school students. And we wanted to see if a 40-week program of yoga would improve grade point average in comparison to a gym program. And so the study was being funded by the Sonema Foundation, which is now called Pure Edge. Uh, I had written the protocol. It was not all that different from the blood pressure protocol. A little bit, but not all that much. And we found that in 40 weeks, the grade point average increased 2.7% over those who just had gym class. So that's quite a, a good rise. That can get you from failing to passing. And uh, this is in a public school, a very hard hit um, called the Title I public school, where 90% or 95% of the kids are in government-funded food programs for breakfast and lunch. So that got me thinking, you know, what exactly is yoga doing? Like, you can take the same basic thing and apply it to very different outcomes that you're looking for and still get positive outcomes, even by doing the same basic thing. So what's the inner mechanism of yoga affecting in order to make that happen? So that's why I wrote the book. Uh, and, and that's what it's on. And so really what we're looking at is the nervous system and how the different practices of yoga, including asanas, pranayama, meditation, chanting, um, service and different types of mental attitudes like loving kindness, etc., are somehow uh, directly targeting the homeostatic functions of the body. And homeostasis, as you know, is that mechanism which helps to constantly restore balance to our system on many, many different levels. And if homeostasis is not supported, then things continue to go out of whack. If, you know, if we're not sleeping enough, if we're not eating well, if we're not exercising, if we're not resting, if we don't have positive social interaction, um, if we're smoking and drinking, homeostasis will be disrupted and disease will start. But if we manage to support homeostasis through just adding in a couple of those things or removing a couple of those things that we're deficient in, we'll support our homeostatic functions. And then homeostasis will start to fix the things that need to be balanced. Because it knows. We might not know, but homeostasis will know. So that if I have a, a difficult time with task completion and staying attentive to the task that I need to be focused on, it might, because, might be because I'm experiencing a lot of stress. And, um, and that stress is from the environment that I'm living in. And because of that stress, I'm not eating well. And I'm also not sleeping well. And so therefore, the parts of my brain which are going to support my ability to have task completion, prefrontal cortex, are going to be temporarily Im impaired because I can't access them. Because 
my, you know, the fear systems and the limbic system are taking over. My survival instincts are taking over because I'm, I'm wary of everything in my environment. So then you're put into a situation where you are taught how to relax and you're, you are gone through a guided meditation and you practice maybe some loving kindness or forgiveness. And, and just that simple introduction of a sympathetic nervous system down-regulating practice will begin to free up that space in the prefrontal cortex, which allows you to now be present again. And so by a very simple intervention, you have um, brought yourself out from a fear-based mechanism or a survival mechanism, and you've brought yourself back into the driver's seat of your brain, and then you can start to focus again. So in the 40-week program, this is basically what I was um, assuming was happening internally was that we had all these young young people who were learning how to relax and learning how to be calm and learning how to be present just a couple, you know, once a week for 40 weeks and maybe it was twice a week. I can't remember right now. And, and just by virtue of doing that, they learned how to put themselves back in the driver's seat of their awareness and then they were able to focus better on their schoolwork and their grade point average improved. Now, for the um, blood pressure patients, the same type of thing happens. As soon as you begin down-regulating um, the sympathetic nervous system and up-regulating the parasympathetic, you're strengthening your vagal tone, which is sending messages to the heart and messages to the baroreceptors, which are monitoring blood pressure. And through the, through the steady, calm breathing and through the relaxation and a little exercising, you're then exercising the whole mechanism, which monitors blood pressure through your homeostasis functions, homeostatic functions. So it's the same basic principles. Homeostasis knows what to do when it's given the support that it needs. So I looked into that and I looked into the nervous system as a whole, and that's basically what the book is about. Yeah, because uh, when you think of it, often at the end of class, you know, everyone will say, um, you know, I feel so much more relaxed or I feel my mind feels clear or the things I was worried about or, you know, everyone experiences, um, you know, that shift that happens um, that, um, you know, we haven't, I guess um, it's not so much talked about really just all the, you know, effects that are going on within the system. Um, the other kind of thing that I'm interested in too is, um, you know, the, the neuroscience around it all of um, how we're starting to understand more about the mind and what really is the mind. Cause you know, we all get caught up in this believing everything that our mind thinks or having a story about ourselves or how we think other people see us and all those kind of um things that we get brought up with and they get propagated you know with it on media around us um so i i sort of love your journey of really talking about you know what you what you've come to know about yourself like this whole pathway this whole journey into i'm i'm not just these thoughts or you know are these thoughts detrimental that I'm having right now and being able to really build the muscle of awareness as well. So I'd love to hear about, you know, what you are discovering and have discovered, you know, on, on your journey too. 
Well, yoga is most definitely a practice of awareness. Um, and, uh, and the word mind is not a great word to use in relation to yoga. Even though I use it all the time, we use it. But it doesn't like, really represent what yoga is looking at. Because the mind or manas, the thing which measures and compares and, and organizes incoming information is considered to be a sense organ in yoga. So like we have our eyes and ears and nose and mouth and skin, and we're drawing in information from the environment through those, the mind is another sense organ, which is helping to organize that incoming information. Uh, and in a deeper level of that is going to be the intellect or the faculty of discernment, where we decide what to do with all of that information. And as that information comes in, the faculty of discernment is going to um, identify with some of it. And sometimes it's going to misidentify with incoming information, and it's going to take on the characteristics of that identity. And that's how we create a narrative. Um, so and some of it is karmic and some of it is environmental. Um, and, and all of it can be unlearned over time through these practices of awareness where we begin to uh, we first we understand what all these different mechanisms are we learn how they operate and then we decide I'm going to meditate on them and I'm going to see you know how they how they're affecting me like if you play around with your diet to change food habits and see how you feel now I'm going to play around with my sense organs and see like if I don't identify too much with the information coming in how does that change how I feel about me and, and how I feel I'm defining me. And so, you know, we do asanas, and asanas are a practice of awareness of the body. And you spread your awareness through your whole body in an asana, and your body starts to tell you things that you need to listen to. So if you try to force a pose or, you know, or think this is how the pose has to be, I'm going to make myself do it, then we're imposing this, um, the false narrative onto our body. And then it enhances that narrative, which could be a mistaken narrative of, oh, you know, this is who I am because I can do this pose. Or this is who I think I am because I can do this pose. And we impose on the pose, like literally. What we really want to do in the posture is we want to introduce a new way of moving and a new way of being aware. And we listen to what our body is telling us. The body will begin to tell us where we need to be in order for energy to flow in the asana and our awareness to move inward. So the, the use of asanas is a new type of awareness of the body so that we can listen and communicate well with this physical structure. And then there's the um, awareness of the breath, which is the same thing. And then the awareness of the mind, which is the exact same thing too. You pay attention, you listen, you form a relationship with this thing that we call our mind and the, the words and the images and the feelings and the thoughts and the memories that are going through it. You know, we pay attention to them. We observe them. We, we become friends with them. And they'll start to tell us things that we need to learn uh, that will then bring us to, oh, now I'm, I feel like I'm at a little bit of a deeper place within myself because I haven't been imposing. Um, you know, I haven't been forcing myself to be happy. I haven't been forcing myself to be spiritual. I haven't been forcing myself to be, you know, disciplined. Um, and then making myself suffer more for it because it's not working. Um, but I've, 
I have listened to why don't I feel happy? You know, why don't I feel um, satisfied with with myself? Why? And you know, and we listen to that. Um, and then something inside of us will say, "This this is why." And then we'll learn something. And from that place of listening, we've already gone deeper. And then that particular thing doesn't have as tight a hold on us as it did before. We become a little bit free because we've, we've experienced it. We're not afraid of it. We've, maybe we've verbalized it. We've articulated it. And we go, okay, now it's not so foreign to me. It's something I can work with. Even though it might be hard, it's still something I can work with. And so this is, a, this is one of the processes. All the different layers of awareness, body awareness, you know, breath awareness, emotional awareness, um, thought awareness or mind awareness, awareness of awareness, um, self-awareness. All of these are what yoga gives to us. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, you started in the beginning too, you know, well, yoga, people come to yoga um, or at least they often start the text of yoga saying, you know, human beings um, uh of finding ways to deal with their suffering. And so that, um, is it true to say that, you know, yoga helps you deal with different kinds of suffering? And it could be, um, as you say, not sleeping well, or it could be um, uh, dealing with a busy mind or, you know, self-criticism or um, just, you um, in general, not feeling um, good in the body. So there's um, what I love about the practices. And, you know, when I first discovered yoga, I was like, wow, this is such a complete system in that you can study this um, tradition, which is just endless. <laughs> and I feel like I'm always scratching the surface of it because there's so many practices and, um, you know, things to choose from. And it's not just about, um, you know, being in the yoga room, but it's also like how you're living your life and um, what you place priority on or how you see um, yourself moving around. Like, what is, the, what is it that you want to bring to the world? Like, there's so, it's, it, there's so much wisdom in it all. Um, so, I mean, I was so thrilled to read your book and to just hear the way in which you are able to um, uh, articulate all the different ways in which, you know, it can be so helpful. And, um, and I think particularly right now during this time where people are stressed, you know, so much more. I think we'll look at, you know, the World Health Organization will <laughs> come out with some other huge figure of how, um, you know, stressed people have been. There's so much uncertainty, financial uncertainty, or people with young kids at home, um, you know, trying to deal with schooling and you know, everything that we've had to deal with, plus the, um, you know, concern of um, just the virus itself and whether, you know, we, we catch it or, like, there, there's sort of more fires around <laughs> than ever of um, concern and stress. And um, I just love that there's this whole tradition. And I, I'm one of those people, like I love the diagrams when I think of like the 
the koshas and the layers and the, you know, there's there's the different, you know, the three malas and the glaciers and the, <laughs> the koshas. And for me, um, they make so much sense. Like if you just follow the, the trail of just one of them, that could be the only thing you ever learn from this and it completely can change your life. Like I, I love that aspect of it too. Um, uh, so um, what would you say, if, um, you know, when you talk about, you know, yoga as a pathway to freedom, I think you used the word yoga was created as a science for liberation. Could you tell us kind of the, the deeper promise of yoga? Well, the, you know, I don't want to say the promise of yoga because I'm not liberated. Um, so I can't say anything with certainty. But uh, this is what the, you know, Patanjali Yoga Sutra, this is the purpose of it is Kaivalya is this final liberation um, from suffering, from the, from the causes of suffering. This is a common theme in the Hindu and Buddhist traditions. Um, it is the theme. Uh, in Buddhism, the idea is that um, life is suffering and suffering has no beginning, but it has an end. And in the Hindu traditions, it's the same thing that uh, the, you know, existence is eternal and has always existed. And that the mutations that occur within existence lead to the different causes of suffering and there is emancipation or freedom from that suffering when you go to the deepest levels of consciousness, for lack of a better word. So that's what yoga is about. And uh, along the way, you know, we're going to do some different things because honestly, not everybody is ready for liberation. Some people are just ready for, I'd like my life to be a little healthier. And that's a really good place to start. But that's also like a little bit of a, a tiny freedom from bad habits. Okay, I want a tiny little bit of a freedom or, or liberation from negativity. It's not helping my life. I would like to be free from indigestion. I'd like to be free from um, always judging people. I'd like to be free from carrying grudges throughout my whole life. I want to be forgiving. So all of these things are tiny little liberations that we can experience along the way that are, you know, we should be encouraged by them because all those small wins can really improve the quality of our life and improve the quality of how we affect other people's lives as well, how we operate within the world. So I, you know, I don't think that right off the bat, everyone, including me, is ready for a full final total liberation. Um, do I want to give up my total identity sense? Um, not really. You know, uh, I don't necessarily want to become one with everything. I love my wife and my daughter and my family. And, uh, you know, I, I like teaching yoga and I enjoy being a person. So, you know, no, I don't necessarily want the highest liberation right now. Maybe later in my life I will. Right now, truth be told, no, I have responsibilities. And so, um, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maintain those. Um, maybe later when I don't have those same level of responsibilities, I can be a little bit more serious about liberation. But right now I'm not. Um, right now I'm just maintaining my sadhanas, doing my practices, engaging with people like this, thinking about yoga, talking about yoga, reading, studying as much as I can. I'll let it all be there. And when the time is right, the time is right. Um, so, but 
What is yoga for? Yoga is for chitta vritti nirodaha, for the stilling of all of the different fluctuations that occur in the field of, um, you know, differentiated consciousness. And the final ultimate goal is kaivalya, which is liberation, aloneness, a separation between existence or consciousness and that which is always changing within existence. That's the final goal. Well, and to some extent, uh, I, I love to use the word awakening because I feel like um, when I catch myself in some kind of negative spiral or negative thinking or judgment someone else or judgment of you know of myself I can see that happening and I can choose to go along that spiral or I can pause it or I can rework the habits and I think you know that's what the practices helped me over the years to be able to sort of refresh and to um uh to be a, a better friend to myself, to be a better friend to my friends, mm-hmm. um, and to have kind of more appreciation for um, both people I feel connected to, or at least um, uh, you know feel that they they think the way I do, but also for others who maybe think differently too. So I feel like there's this the you know the journey of awakening is this you know, um, uh, opportunity day by day to become a, a more, um, I guess, kind, um, thoughtful, uh, somebody who, who and really show up in their authentic self and to be able to give back to the world, to, um, to, to be authentic, to be of service. Um, and that you can do that in your normal day life. It's um, so for me, I guess the sense of um, knowing there are so many people over time who have walked this path and become able to be more in that in that place where they're not so affected by their samskaras or their karma. So there's a sense of more freedom. And I love all those stories in the, you know, when you read some of the beautiful stories, you know, can be the guy who, who works, the cobbler who works with the shoes, who has just got a radiance about them. They, they still go on about doing their daily tasks and, you know, um, taking care of the shoes. But there is a, they've, they've moved to a, a, a space within them that, um, yeah, that it, there is more connected within them. So it's not sort of like they've had to go or walk off to a cave anywhere. So they Yeah, but I think there's a difference between that kind of absolute um, being at peace within yourself and being a kind and generous person and liberation where the person who you think you are no longer exists. Right. Mm-hmm. That person will no longer be there. And the way that samadhi is defined is that there's only the object of meditation shines forth in the field of chitta, but the meditator has disappeared. Right. So in Kavalya, you will no longer exist, Saraswati. It, with your name, with your identity, with everything, you will be gone. Um, and um, so, you know, it's either you want that or or you don't. And or you don't want that now, but maybe you want that later, or maybe it happens spontaneously and you have no no control over it. 
Um, but there's, I think there's a distinction between that if you read the text carefully and between just being a, a loving, radiant, happy, connected, caring, grateful, appreciative person. Like that's a, a very good goal to have as well. That's fine. There's plenty there for us to work with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's really lovely to talk with you today. And um, again, I'm so impressed by your um, book and the, all the work you're doing and taking it out into the world. Um, it's, it's great. Um, I think, you know, it's so great to be able to do the work that you're doing with the different communities you're doing and to you know, to make these practices more out there um, so that people can really benefit from them. Yeah, so. we, put out, we put out an app this month called Yoga 365, and it's um, 365 days of micro practices where every day you're sent a one-minute yoga practice. It's either a posture or a breathing practice or a meditation, and the postures are super simple. It's like really entry-level beginner or people who don't have time for longer practice. And so the idea is for people who think they need to do something, but they don't have time for a 20-minute class or a 30-minute class, but they can give themselves one minute a day. It's basically one minute a day, um, physical, breath, and mental practices. So, um, you know, this is one of the ways we're also thinking about how can we get simple yoga practices out to people who would benefit from them but um, don't have a yoga studio to go to, don't have a lot of time, can't sit in front of a YouTube video or, or whatever. So we're giving that a go. So far, it's going pretty, pretty good. But the idea behind micro practices is you seed a very small practice into your day. And then over time, cumulatively, it begins to have an effect and, and changes different habits of your life. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Eddie. It's lovely to talk with you. And um, good luck with all your projects. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us. Please leave us a review so that others can find us.